This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this week's episode, we're very pleased to be joined by Alex Bloomberg in North Quad Studios. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of Gimlet Media, a podcast network. Before founding Gimlet, he was a freelance reporter, a producer for This American Life, and a co-host of NPR's Planet Money, a podcast that existed in the early days of podcasts. Alex, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thanks. Great to be here. Alex, you have experience in many facets of media businesses, but you may be best known to our listeners for your podcast, Startup, which is about the process of building startups. And I just want to take a moment and contemplate the very meta nature of a (laughs) podcast about podcasts about podcasts. In the first season, you talk about the reasons why you founded Gimlet and chronicle the process of bringing it to air. For our listeners who haven't heard the podcast, can you describe why you founded Gimlet and what your goals for the network are? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I I got my start in public radio at This American Life, and that was where I spent a lot of my formative years. And at This American Life, um, that was one of the more most popular shows in public radio. And, and as podcasting came along, we started a podcast, and that became a very popular podcast. And then while at This American Life, I started getting interested in the sort of the financial stuff that, that was happening in the housing bubble, and then... I did a, a show at This American Life called The Giant Pool of Money, which was an hour on sort of the financial crisis with a reporter from NPR named Adam Davidson. And that was that was a huge success at This American Life. I like just got more emails about that show than we had ever gotten before then. Um, and lots of people listened to it, and it became the sort of like signature show for us. And Adam became convinced that we should do a podcast that was just focusing on financial and econo- financial matters and economics. He convinced me to sort of like leave my job as a producer and start to come with him and start this other podcast called Planet Money. And Planet Money became a success. And, and that was very illuminating for me. I, was, I, I thought like, oh, we, we've taken the same tools and skills that I learned at This American Life, the same sort of storytelling you know, approach that we were using at This American Life to tell a certain kind of story. And we sort of ported it over to a show about business and economics. And it worked and people liked it. And so that got me thinking, and then there was just growth. You know, we were all around. We were, like, sort of, like, Planet Money, the early days. So Planet Money felt it really hit a niche because, like, it was, like, the financial crisis was happening and we were one of the few places that could actually talk about it in human terms in ways that people understood. Because as we learned, most of the people who were actually in the business didn't really understand what was happening either. We were in a very, sort of, like, fortunate position to be, sort of, the people who could explain it to people. But there was also something about this medium of podcasting that was just very, very intimate and... I remember we would do these live shows, and I'd been on the air at this point. I'd done a bunch of big shows. I'd been on the air for about 10 years now at This American Life, and I was like pretty well-established in my career. But we would do these live shows at Planet Money, and we would sell out these theaters, and people would come up to me with like a piece of paper and a pen, and I was like, what, what do you want me to do? And they would like, they literally wanted my autograph. Uh, and that had never happened before. You know, that, that was something that was, like, seemed very brand new. There's a feeling around, it was about the podcast, it was about they'd sought us out, they downloaded this thing, they had this personal connection to us. So it just seemed like, okay, well, if it worked for Planet Money, we can do the same kind of thing for lots and lots of different subject areas, lots and lots of different ideas. And so I was trying to get this idea of like a fund or something like that started inside public radio, but I wanted to own part of it. (laughs) Um, Because... I was like trying to figure out like I just wanted to own part of it, you know. I wanted to be like part of the. I was. I felt like I. I was like sort of instrumental in creating it, and I wanted to own a piece of it. Um, and that was hard to do within the sort of confines of public media. 
So we bounced around a bunch of ideas, and it eventually became clear that really, in order to do it, I was just going to have to quit my job and raise money. And so I decided to do that. Um, and the idea was to to sort of take what, what was happening inside public radio, sort of like where like shows would incubate and sort of get launched, but very, very slowly, if at all, and just sort of juice the process a little bit, just sort of like raise some money, try to launch a couple of shows, try to bring a bunch of things to air. It felt like podcasting was this like blank slate and there was this just all this potential for growth and flowering and creative sort of new directions. And I just needed to like get some money together and start making it happen. Well, that pretty much covers my next question, yeah. <laughs> which is going to be, you know, why leave public radio mm. for a commercial endeavor? Uh, because that's not, especially in the American system, you have two entities that don't really interact that much, but it seems like you've been able to maintain ties, or it seems like your mission is still very similar to what public media would offer. So can you talk at all about maybe how, by being commercial, Gimlet is different? Yeah, I think a lot is made of the structure in which the the work gets done, it's meaningful, like, for sure. I I was pretty hungry to have it be a for-profit institution. One of the things that's hard about a not-for-profit or or sort of like a a non-profit structure is that it's hard to keep going when you're on a on a on a win streak. You know what I mean? It's hard to sort of like juice it. If you if you if you if you hit something that's working, it's hard to sort of like double down. And when, and when you're in a for-profit structure, you can raise more money and sort of like, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of go that way. So like for example, we we launched a, a fiction show, uh, Homecoming. Homecoming, which was always part like I was thinking like as we were con- contemplating what kinds of shows there should be, like I thought like fiction is, a, is an obvious no-brainer. You know, because basically what's happening is, like, the same sort of on-demand, you know, sort of trends that hit all other media yeah. are now finally coming to the radio. Yeah. And they didn't come to the radio for a bunch of, like, institutional reasons, mostly having to do with the car dashboard. Like, the car dashboard didn't innovate. Mm-hmm. And so, like, radio was, for, like, a decade or a decade and a half, was still linear right. when everything else had already gone on-demand. Finally, we're in the on-demand world, too, so everything's changing for us now, finally, as well. And... And in that on-demand world, it felt to me like, oh, fiction is going to be huge. Like, fiction didn't have a world if you if you can if you just have to catch it when you're in the car. But if you can choose to listen to it, oh my gosh, people are going to love to do that, right? They're going to love to like binge it while they're on a, on, on a trip or like save it up for when they're running or washing the dishes or whatever. It harkens back to like the early days of radio where fiction was a thing. Before television, people would sit around radio and programs. listen. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and every new medium like starts with nonfiction, including print, <laughs> you know, it starts with the Bible and then, and then it goes into other things. And most, a lot of that is fiction. So I want to do fiction. So we did homecoming. It was, it was a, it was a pretty big hit. It got picked up for television. It's not going to be a TV show on Amazon starring Julia Roberts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, but, but if we want it back to my original point, like in order to sort of like really, so now we want to do more fiction and as a, for profit, we can, we can we, raise a bunch of money and we can sort of throw like a couple million dollars at a fiction department and sort of start making a lot of things where, whereas you wouldn't be able to do that inside. Yeah. You'd have to take the money You'd from have to sort of like, yeah. yeah, and then there's like a bunch of other concerns. So, so it's just like, you're a little bit more flexible. Mm-hmm. You can be a little bit more sort of like go where the, where the demand is. And, uh, it's not. Like I think a lot of people say, well, are you now? Now your number one job is to make a profit, and and I think that is not true at all. Like our like our number, we have to make a profit. Like that's definitely a thing that we have to do. We have to support our our, our work. 
that's the thing that you have to do in public radio also. Like, you have to figure out a way to get the money to support the work. But if all we were cared about was all we cared about was profit, we would become bankers or something. Like, there's not there's not great margins in podcasting. <laughs> you know, it's not like the not like the know. ten times margins yeah. or whatever that Chris Saka was talking yes, about. Exactly, it's not like the sort of the hedge fund manager where you sort of get twenty percent of all profits and two percent of all the money you know invested and you're taking home a hundred million in your first mm-hmm. year or whatever. Like, it's like it's a very different business model. So to me, it just felt like it was just like serving like sort of like here's the here's the pluses and minuses of all different kinds of, of, of sort of corporate arrangements and, and funding models. And like, it feels like this is the way to go for us. Also, I was working at a lot of shows that were profitable, mm-hmm. you know? And so it felt like, and that's the goal. Like, and, and so it didn't feel like fair to say like, we're going to be a not-for-profit because we don't need to be. Mm-hmm. Like we can make a profit. Like this American life is profitable. Like planet money is very profitable if they existed outside, right. you know? Um, and and there's a reason like NPR as a, I think it would be hard to make a global newsroom in a for-profit oh, right. you know sort of setting. So I understand why there's other arrangements and I think there should be other arrangements, but for us it just felt like we're doing a specific thing and I want to I want to go this route. Yeah, one of the things that you talked about in season 1 of Startup was trying to make public radio style journalism long form this American lifestyle pieces in a commercial environment. So does that mean something different to you now than when you started back in 2014? Like, does the kind of how have the kind of stories you've told evolved, and like, how has your definition of what kind of journalism you want to do changed? I, I think basically it's just expanded. Like, I think once I was in inside public radio, there's a very speci- you have sort of a specific way of thinking about of thinking about things, and it's just like once once I got out, I sort of. Inside podcasting, there's a couple different sort of th- strands that are happening inside podcasting. There was the public radio strand, which was pretty big. You know, you've got This American Life, and you've got like all the M- NPR shows and Ted Radio Hour and all these sort of like long formish sort of like stuff, like learning sort of adjacent or, or in the middle of. Um, you got Radio Lab, all the NYC shows. Um, then you have this whole other strand, which is just sort of like tech, and there's like a lot of tech talk and then and then there's this whole other strand which is sort of like which was sort of like comedy and and chat and once I got out of public radio like I started to see those other strands a little bit more you know sort of like more clearly and now it's all sort of combining in these weird interesting totally crazy ways and so that's what I'm excited about and then I'm also excited about like sort of like what else like fiction is going to be big for us like how does that even look like how do we make a great fiction sort of like home for fiction and how does that how do we make a fiction pipeline like what 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 does a great fiction podcast look like you know that's all super exciting stuff to figure out that's sort of outside of public radio it's easier to sort of think about it was almost exactly a year I went back and looked it was in episode 16 that we last talked about podcasts and at that point uh, there was a lot of excitement around commercial podcasts uh, Ken Doctor had done a five part series for Neiman Lab um, and with numbers like there are 300,000 podcasts on iTunes, although fewer than 10% were making money. It wasn't clear what making money meant. It was, what, about a year after Serial? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And so, I guess, where are we on the excitement meter now, do you think? How do you see the commercial landscape? Yeah, I mean, I'm still, the excitement meter for me is still pretty high. Uh, It hasn't, it hasn't trended down. If anything, it's sort of, like, more exciting. Because I think a lot more people are interested 
a lot more people are now sort of like getting into it. A lot more companies are coming into it, you know. So something recently was like the Dirty John podcast, which was mm-hmm. like um, a collaboration between a podcast company, Wondery, and uh, the LA Times. And so they did sort of a serialized version of this like sort of LA Times story that was sort of this noirish, like there was this like weirdo doctor and his relationships with like these women. And it sort of like chronicled this sort of like weird mystery. And it was a huge hit. And then the Daily, you know, the New York Times podcast that started, which is fantastic. Um, They're doing a great job. So a lot of the more traditional media companies are coming into podcasting. Uh, So that's changing the landscape a little bit. Um, And I think more bigger names are are coming, you know? Uh, Like we, we, you know, our fiction podcast, Homecoming... um, we had, you know, it started Oscar Isaac yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Catherine <the> Keener. <laughs> and those were like sort of like, you know, that was sort of like really, I, I was sort of surprised, you know, that we were able to get this, that, the guy who's in Star Wars to be on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I think there, and I think it's because there's this perception now sort of broadly that like, oh, podcasts are sort of a cool, it's like at this point point where it's like really bubbly really creative like it's the place to be it's where a lot of juice is and a lot of energy that that feels really fun and yeah is there still a lot of venture excitement or are you to a point where that's less of a concern because you've got a a ready stock of advertisers um there's a lot well we we just raised around this year so we 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 have we raised a 15 million dollar round so we have like we have a bunch of money in the bank and we don't have any play, plans to raise again anytime soon? So I'm not sure. Like we're not out there trying to figure out if there's if there's excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, we but there was earlier. There was for <laughs> sure, uh, and I I would imagine there still is. You know, mm-hmm. I think at this point we're we're sort of like it's all about like are the things that we think are, are going to happen going to happen? Which is sort of like is the are more and more people going to continue to come into the medium? Mm-hmm. It's been like a lot of people coming from like linear listening to on demand listening, and is that going to continue? I would assume it would. I, I don't see why it would stop, but you know, you never know. Well, the smart speaker, yeah. um, as yes, as a technological tool that's likely to be very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little mm-hmm. bit. We had Tamar Charney from NPR One in a few weeks ago, and oh. you know, it just she was talking about sort of the way in which that wasn't fully anticipated, but um, you know, a, a technology that's very well suited precisely to yes. help advance something like on-demand. Audio listening. Yeah, yeah, just asking Alexa to play Reply All or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And you can do that now, and it gets played through TuneIn, which is like the, oh. you know. But we don't, we, yeah, but that's something that we're thinking about as well. Like, mm-hmm. what, should our, what should our approach be to the smart speaker? And that seems like both, that's super exciting. Like, I think it's, most listening, you know, when we've surveyed people, most listening, I always thought like, oh, podcasting is for your commute, it's for your workout or whatever, it's out of the home. But most listening is still at home. Really? Yeah. Most people still listen at home. And I think, I think they're listening while they're doing other kinds of household activities. I think they're probably listening while they're in the kitchen, while they're cooking, et cetera. Laundry. Yeah, laundry, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so if that's the case, again, we don't know that much about our listeners, um, but if that's the case, like, that would be, you know, the, the Alexa and the, the home speakers will fit in, you know, a lot, you know, will fit in very well. Yeah. So let, let's pivot a little bit um, and ask, so what worries you the most about podcasting and about the future? And kind of as a tangent to that, what's... Or what are the biggest challenges that you faced in entering this space and maintaining your presence? I mean, what worries me the most is just uh, 
I think it's a very basic worry of any media company, which is like sort of like how do you make something that people want to you know engage with? That to me is the is the biggest question still. Um, I think honestly, if I'm being honest, like the biggest curveball for us was was Trump, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that just sort of created this whole new category of listening, which is sort of political podcasting, which we were totally unprepared for. We didn't have any political shows or anything like that, and, and, that, and that ends up like, and that opens the door for like Crooked Media and the Pod Save America and like The Daily and all these other shows that sort of now come on and are sort of like, you know, explaining the current political moment. I think the charts. Everything looks very different if, you know, in, in the era of Clinton versus the era of Trump. Hmm. That's an example of sort of just things happen that are unexpected <laughs> and can totally have, like, very, you know, significant knock-on effects. Now, of course, the consequences of the Trump presidency on Gimlet Media are <laughs> nine billionth in anybody's list of concerns. But, you know, it's a, you know... It's high a, on horse. A, it's a, it, was a, it was a thing. So... So how do we, you know, what are people going to be interested in? And like, how, how can we, how can we meet them where they're interested in? That's, that's my basic, that's the most, I feel like if we can sort of like continue to sort of like make stuff that people want to listen to, where, where are they listening is, is less important. Like for us, like we're, we're, we're pretty firmly in the content creation sort of like for better or worse, that's, that's, that's where we are. That's where our expertise is. That's what we're doing. Yeah. You guys, Um, you guys launched a show called Uncivil. Yes. Um, pretty recently. And I, I don't know. I feel like that to me is a show that really kind of speaks to our moment, even if it's not directly a politics podcast. It's yes. telling stories of the Civil War, yeah. which is something that is now is suddenly like, back in the Bizarrely, news. <laughs> depressingly relevant somehow still. Yes, exactly. No, and that's an example of like one. And that's an example also like where when Jack and Chandra were sort of developing that show, that was a, that was an example of a show that I just felt like this should exist. And history is interesting. Like there's not like a t- there's like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is like a monster. But other than that, and then there's stuff you missed in history class. There's a couple mm-hmm. podcasts out there that are sort of like, but there wasn't really anything that was taking sort of like this narrative produced approach to a history show. And then on top of that, this sort of like moment from American history that is like so incredibly relevant and still is like in many ways the story of, of most of contemporary America is sort of like going, you know, sort of is the story of race in America, essentially. And like and, and the Civil War as, a, as this flashpoint is a, is, is, a, is a great opportunity to look at that. And so we were doing that show thinking like, but it's that feels that's a that's a risk like our advertisers are going to want to advertise on a show about you know sort of like America's ugly racial past uh, and present uh, are people like how much is that gonna you know but but at the same time that was an example of sort of like where we started this thinking like thinking we were sort of like zagging against the zig of the current moment and then actually the the current moment sort of zigged back to us <laughs> you know and sort of like and now there's this interesting convergence and that's just doing doing really well yeah in an interview this summer, you made the point that you know, podcasts are such a broad category that it's difficult to say anything meaningful. I mean, mm-hmm. The equivalent in video is probably you have everything from Game of Thrones to you know the the video I post on YouTube of my toddler rocking out to his ABCs. Yeah, right? yeah. We need to say we need to organize podcasts in some ways in order mm-hmm. to be able to say intelligible things about them. Do you have any way in which you organize the competitive space? Yeah, I mean, I think about like. There's, like, the interview show, there's the chat show, um, which is, like, sort of two hosts. There's, like, sort of, like, edited interview show. Like, et- once you sort of, like, go into sort of, like, editing for, for content and sort mm-hmm. of, like... On the media, yeah. for example. Yeah, or or Fresh Air yeah. is, like, the, the, the quintessential example of the sort of, like, highly produced interview show. Where, yeah. like, you know, there's, like, 
a lot of preliminary research that goes into those those interviews are highly edited um, for flow and, and and that sort of thing. So they'll ask a question and then sort of like move things and cut out chunks and all sorts of stuff just for like pacing and flow. And then beyond that, there's this like sort of like sort of like pretty broad space that sort of like I, I don't know how to think about them produced shows expensive shows <laughs> you know the thing about like doing the kinds of shows that, that that we do like a reply all or uncivil is that like the minute you sort of enter that space um the degree of difficulty skyrockets the expense skyrockets and the need for sort of a larger audience to support the whole endeavor skyrockets mm-hmm. those those kinds of shows are they're good because like they're it's the, you have a little bit of a moat around your if you can succeed you have a moat around you like you can it's harder to do those kinds of shows. You have to have resources, you have to have training, you have to have sort of like, you have to understand about like, you know, sort of like storytelling, et cetera. And so that's where we've sort of staked our claim and where we're a, lot of, a lot of our effort's going to go. The, the problem is that like, the economics of a very successful chat or interview show are very, very appealing. Um, so if you can do, if you can have a show like Fresh Air or um, Pod Save America or... Um, any of these other Joe Rogan, you know, any of these other podcasts out there where it's just where they're essentially interview shows, but they have massive audiences. Like the upside there is is tremendous. That that is good margins. <laughs> that, that, then you're approaching banker margins. Um, and so we're trying to figure out like where do we fit into that landscape? How do we do that? There's also just like you can launch a million interview shows and they won't they'll bubble around, you know, mm-hmm. 20,000, 30,000 listeners or something like that, which isn't going to move the needle that much. And to get, like, an interview show to a million listeners, which is, like, you know, we have gotten shows to a million listeners several times now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the odds are higher if you're doing a produced show to get them there than if you're doing an interview show. I think you have to take more tries to get the interview show, but it's cheaper on an interview show. Than, so it's, like, you can you can experiment more quickly. So we're trying to figure out, like, what do, we, what do we think about that? Oh, that's interesting because the, the way really the broadcast networks on the television side, you know, sort of before the current disruption, most of our focus as, as viewers was on prime time. And mm-hmm. we thought, and, and indeed, they were making a lot of money from the advertising in that, but they were also paying so much for that programming. And yeah. so the sort of unsung you know, hero of the balance sheet has always been shows like the Today Show. Yes. They're mm-hmm. very cheap to produce uh, relative yeah. to the audiences that they bring in. And, so, and that's why their declining ratings really hurt. Yeah. Like yeah. NBC, like when the Today Show started going down, that started to become a big story because that was their cash cow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the different ways, so in, a, in an era that was defined by a linear schedule, the, the way that that was, balance was achieved, but here in this non-linear space, uh, we don't really have a lot of experience with what kind of portfolio of types of shows that you need to develop or, you know, what are the strategies for yeah. having a, a competitive uh, mix of content. Right. Yeah. And I think we want to, like, I think if we could have a couple of, like, sort of, yeah, the unsung hero of the balance sheet is a good way of thinking about it. Like, there's, <laughs> like, there's a, then, and, and so we want to, we want to think about that because, like, I think to me, like, if we could have hits every time like then it would then this is all we would do but if like but I think to be prudent we should probably start thinking about other kinds other kinds of programming as well but we're just trying to wrestle through that right now we're thinking about it we don't exactly know we want the Gimlet brand to stand for something and and like and right now it does like it very much does and it will Mm -hmm. continue to but so like how do you sort of like the thing we think about is like HBO right like HBO um, has always been sort of like um, a touch point for us because HBO does a wide variety of programming Basically, if it's an HBO show, you're going to 
give it a shot because you just trust the brand. Um, And I think Gimlet is that right now, and I want it to continue to be that. We have to maintain that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to maintain our brand. Um, And then we have to figure out, like, what are other kinds of programming that we can do while, while, while doing that. It's interesting that you bring up HBO in this context because one thing I thought about with your answer is how HBO uses kind of the hits to support the smaller shows. Like, for every Game of Thrones, there's an Insecure a show that they kind of believe in and want to put on the air, but it might not necessarily have the viewership to, right. you know, justify itself on its own. But I wonder, like, in terms of their bottom line, I, you know, like, no doubt they're making money off of Games of, Game of Thrones, but, like, if, if Bill Maher or, you know, boxing or, like, you know, sort of, like, rerun movies <laughs> isn't... I don't know. I haven't seen their balance sheet, but I don't know if that's more meaningful in terms of, the, the, in terms of like funding the insecures than, than, than Game of Thrones. Well, they, the difference, and mm-hmm. this was a related question, is that they're a subscriber-funded service. Mm-hmm. So on some level, all they're trying to do is maintain subscribers. And so I'd actually right. push, I think that we each have our sense of what HBO is, and I yes. think the same thing is actually true of Netflix, mm-hmm. but that there's actually a whole lot on HBO that like, I don't think about because it's the part of HBO that's ga- that's focused on gathering another subscriber. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, I'll give everything a try, but it's kind of everything that's sort of in that sort of psychographic that's targeted toward me. Like right. Vice Principles is not for me. Uh, <laughs> an, an excellent example. Right. And, you know, the, one, the example I always pull out at Netflix is, is really the importance of Adam Sandler to um, mm-hmm. their brand. And again, that's for a different part of right. the Netflix mm-hmm. viewing audience. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something that a subscription model gives you is that ability to you know, sort of maybe identify different audience segments that you're programming for and you're, you're offering each of those segments a bit, but mm-hmm. um, it takes some of the pressure off of the um, overall viewers, listeners um, of any single program because you're just providing something that's so specific that they can't get anywhere else and, and maintaining yeah. that subscriber for that reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we're in a very different, like, the, the I, I, when I talk about HBO, I talk about sort of like the, um, the brand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the business model's completely different. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about uh, revenue sources and especially membership. I think that's a good place to go. Um, So Gimlet has a service where you guys offer membership for Mm -hmm. five bucks a month or sixty dollars a year, and this is something I've noticed that even smaller podcasts started doing. Like my my intro to podcasts was Mugglecast back in the day um, Uh as a Harry Potter fan, and something they've started doing is a service called Patreon, where, like, you give them a few bucks a month and they give you extra content and stuff. So how important is membership revenue to Gimlet, and how does that kind of help you guys as we so our number one source by far is ad ad revenue. So that's 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 the biggest chunk by far mm-hmm. of 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 our overall revenue. And then after that, it's probably like IP, like the stuff that we're doing with like the licensing Homecoming, and 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 you know there's going to be a network sitcom of the first season of Startup. On really? ABC, yes, starring Zach Braff as me. Uh, that's how, that's coming on ABC. Actually, we're not making that much money off of that one. That was what our first deal. But like, there's mm-hmm. like you know, it's still. Um, and then you know, there's a Reply All story that's getting turned into a movie with Richard yeah. Linklater. Mm-hmm. There's other sort of like Hollywood deals that are sort of in the works that are going to come through. So we're hoping. So that's a that's that's a big part of it. Branded podcasts are also sort of like a, you know, sort of like a um, you know, sort of like a, a chunk of of revenue. But the by far the biggest, like by you know, sort of like three quarters, is just sort of like the straightforward advertising on shows, the the mid roll basically. Um, 
And then underneath that is membership. So membership is not like a huge meaningful. It's like it's like a lot of money, but it's not like a meaningful chunk for of our overall revenue mm-hmm. revenue mix. Originally, we launched it because I was I always thought that like public radio, you know, they get ten percent of their listeners to sort of like you know, sort of kick in for free. And, like, they always bemoan that, like, only 10% are paying. But, like, when you go to the Silicon Valley people and they're like, you're getting a conversion rate of 10%? That's insane. <laughs> you know, like, this is from a world where you usually your conversion rate is, like, 0.1 or 0.2, you know. So I, I was I always thought, like, if we could get anywhere close to public radio, and my, my theory was that, like, it's not so much about, like, we need your money as it is. Like, we love your content and we want to be part of the creation of it. So I thought that I could sort of make the same pitch without being so annoying as like the public and 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 that that's wrong <laughs> like that is like i think people are less less likely to they they don't want to like fork over money for something they can get for free if it's also venture backed and there's right. you know like that that just doesn't that doesn't make any sense so um, that was you know, one of the many sort of wrong ideas I had. Um, so the question of sort of like how do we go direct to the to the listener is is one that we're still thinking about. Like we, I think what we want to do is, I think the Patreon model works really well if it's an independent podcast and it's like and it's like you're sort of like narrow casting to a group of diehard fans. Mm-hmm. Like Google um, Cast is like Harry well, yes, fans. exactly. And like uh, uh, the the place the the quintessential sort of example of that is um, Chapo Trap House. Which is a podcast that's um, it's like a sort of a chat show, political talk chat chat show from the from the left, from the I think the pretty far left, um, and um, and they just do like a, a booming business on Patreon, um, and I think that's a big I've heard I don't know for sure, but I've heard that's a, a pretty significant part of their part of their revenue, and so I think I think that model exists and it and it's possible for a lot of podcasters who have sort of like a pretty devoted fan base. Um, and I, I love that it exists. We're still trying to figure out how, how to make it work for, for us. Like, how do we, what's the value prop that we offer people that, for, that they will want to sort of, like, pay us directly for, for something? Mm-hmm. That's a big part of what we want to figure out. Like, we have a bunch of members, and, and they, they, you know, we have, they have perks that they get. They get to listen to things early. There's, like, they have access to this special Slack yeah. group, which is, which, is, which is cool. It's awesome. Like, like, I, like I love the membership program and I, and I love our members and I'm trying to, but we want to try to figure out like how to, how to beef it up somehow. It sounds like that same kind of uh, passion that you were connecting with early on in your podcasting when people started coming to you for autographs. So the, the, <laughs> that motivation to want to be part of something, maybe it's not just about spending the money, but also feeling uh, the opportunity for the, the live or the special. Um, even. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so live events is a thing that people do a lot. We want to sort of take our shows on the road a little mm-hmm. bit, like try to do that. Like, I think there's a lot of energy that can get, that can come from that. And like, and like we have, you know, like reply all, for example, like, I think, you know, they have, th- th- that's a big opportunity for, for them. Like, I think they, they have a huge audience. Their fans are very, very passionate. They had fans to begin with. I actually followed them to reply oh, all from TLDR. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so they, they, and they, I feel like that's like, uh, and then Uncivil also, like there's like mm-hmm. others, like they, you know, before that show even launched, they sort of like sold out like this venue in, in Brooklyn and, and there's just like a lot of excitement around that. So, so I think, I think that's something that we can do. We're trying to figure it out. We have to, basically the, we're at the size now where like, if you want something to happen, like it, we have to assign 
an owner to it, <laughs> you know, and uh, there's no longer gone are the days where like I'm like, oh yeah, we should try to do that, and I do it in my spare time. Like that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> so um, and now we're sort of like cost benefit analysis. Like, what's more important? Is it more important to sort of like get fiction up and launched? Is it more important to sort of like come up with a, a smart speaker strategy? Is it more important to beef up? You know, and there's all like there's only so many. This is one of the things that I've learned now is like. There's only, you have to really, there's opportunity costs for everything you do. Mm-hmm. If you do this, you're not going to be able to do that. And so you just have to sort of really figure out like what you're going to invest in and invest in that. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of opportunity cost, I'm pretty sure you gave up an hour of sleep to talk with us this morning. Uh, and I just would like to thank you again for coming in and uh, uh, giving our little podcast a, a little bit of flavor of the big time. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was good. It was, it was really fun. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. For more about our show, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. For new episodes in your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you subscribe to us on those platforms, please rate and review as it helps new listeners find the show. You can follow Amanda at Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. You can follow our wonderful guest today, Alex Bloomberg, at at Abex Lumberg. That's A-B-E-X-L-U-M-B-E-R-G. And I'm at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back real soon.